Well, if you turn your Bibles now to the book of 1 Corinthians, our scripture reading will come from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 19. We have been looking at the subject of speaking in tongues and the charismatic gifts that were there. And last week we looked at prophecy and tongues and how love is supreme, more important than the gifts that the Corinthians were desiring to have the more showy gifts. And so here he instructs them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 19, on the proper role and the exercise of the gift of tongues in biblical times. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The text reads, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching. Yet, even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, How will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then, I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise... If you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. (coughs) 
Our Father, we are grateful once again to have the privilege and the freedom to come hear from your word. God, we pray that you would speak to us, that we might know your mind and your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book entitled Charismatic Chaos, the author had acquired some Sunday school literature designed for children. And it was designed to teach kindergarten children to speak in tongues. It is entitled, quote, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an eight-page coloring book. One page has a caricature of a smiling weightlifter with a t-shirt that says, Spirit Man. Under him is printed 1 Corinthians 14.4. He that speaks in an unknown language builds himself up. Another page features a boy who looks like Howdy Doody with his hands lifted up. A dotted outline pictures where his lungs would be. Evidently represents his spirit. Inside the lung-shaped diagram is printed, quote, Bali okomata laseta nomo. A cartoon-style balloon coming from his mouth represents, repeats the words, Bali okomata laseta nomo. A brain-shaped cloud is drawn behind his head with a large question mark in the cloud. Also inside the cloud is printed, quote, My mind doesn't understand what I'm saying. Under the boy, 1 Corinthians 14, 14 is printed. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my mind or my understanding is unfruitful. Unquote. In charismatic circles, the gift of speaking in tongues tends to be prominent and forefront among all of the spiritual gifts. In fact, in some charismatic denominations, you are not considered to be filled by the Spirit of God unless you exhibit the speaking of tongues. That prominence of the gift of speaking in tongues today is not too much different than the prominence that it was given in the Corinthian church of biblical times. In the Corinthian church, however, it was a very selfish and a self-seeking motive by which members would seek that gift. And Paul corrects that by emphasizing Christian love. Christian love, you see, seeks to promote the welfare of others, not oneself. And after his encouragement that we've looked at for a number of weeks of how to pursue and what to pursue in terms of love rather than to show off their spiritual gift, Paul here addresses in chapter 14 the problem of chaos in the church, which has come about by all sorts of people who have brought in some of the philosophies of the surrounding religions and surrounding cults. Because Christians aren't the only ones that purport to speak in tongues. In fact, in that day, it was not uncommon for people to, quote-unquote, speak in a tongue. One commentator writes, quote, The practice of ecstatic utterances (coughs) was common in many of the pagan Greco-Roman religions of Paul's day, including those active in Corinth. Devotees of a god would drink and dance themselves into frenzies until they went into semi-consciousness or even unconsciousness and experienced they considered to be the 
highest form of communication with the divine. They believe that in such drunkenness, their spirits left their bodies and communed directly with the God or gods, a practice to which Paul alludes to in Ephesians 5.18. The ecstatic speaking that often accompanied such experiences was thought to be the language of the gods. The term, to speak in a tongue or in tongues that Paul uses so frequently in chapter 14 were commonly used in his day to describe pagan ecstatic speech. It reminded me of the 80s when I was in junior high and high school. It was big news about the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh who came and he was known, very well known in the Northwest. Why? Because he moved out to Oregon and had a camp. He was known for all of his Rolls Royces and what they would have. They would have loud music and dancing, ecstatic dancing until people were no longer conscious or in control and they would dance themselves into a frenzy. Now in the church, much of what was common in pagan religions of Corinth was brought in to the church in Paul's day. Some of the tongues perhaps were legitimate. Others, though, were definitely counterfeit. David Lowry in the Bible Knowledge Commentary writes, quote, The same may be said of the meaning of the word glossa elsewhere in the New Testament, whether it was used literally of the physical organ or figuratively of human language, it is nowhere referred to ecstatic speech. And yet there are people today that go around and hold huge seminars that teach people how to speak in tongues. Charles and Francis Hunter hold healing explosion meetings where they teach people how to receive the gift of tongues. And he tells tens of thousands of people at a time, quote, when you pray with your spirit, you do not think of the sounds of the language. Just trust God, but make the sounds when I tell you to. In just a moment, when I tell you to begin loving and praising God by speaking forth a lot of different syllables. At first, make the sound rapidly so you won't try to think as you do in speaking your natural language. Make the sounds loudly at first so you can easily hear what you are saying, unquote. Intentionally teaching people to make sounds that don't make sense and call it tongues? That's what was happening perhaps at Corinth. Chaos. It would be as if the worship leader said, well, we're going to sing a new song today. Put all the words up there and you all are going to sing it. No accompaniment. I'm not going to lead you. You just make up whatever tune you want and we're going to sing this new song together. How good would that sound? Awful. The Corinthians were much into this type of a thing. Much into the spiritual gifts because they wanted to be the ones who were visible. The Bible tells us, though, that tongues, even though they were very visible, were secondary. And that's what Paul outlines here, that they're secondary, especially to the gift of prophecy when they're exercised. And when they were, they were to be interpreted. It was not this free-for-all thing where people can do what they want and speak in whatever gibberish they felt like. The first thing the Corinthians need to know as we look at this particular passage is that tongues are secondary. Tongues are secondary in verses 1 through 5. He tells them, look, pursue love 
And lest anybody think that he's downplaying all spiritual gifts at all, he says, Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. You see, after sharing with the Corinthians, look, love is greater than all of the gifts. Pursue love. That word is a pursuit of intensity. Loving others is when we are to be characterized by. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's going to be easy. Or not when others love me, I'll love them back. No, we are to love other people. And to see them as God sees them. It is an intentional pursuit of love. But lest, again, people think, oh, gosh, he's just downplaying all spiritual gifts. In fact, some churches will do this. They'll never speak or teach on spiritual gifts because of uh, the fear that it might bring some sort of aberration. Paul says here, earnestly desire, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And in biblical times, he was speaking to them, look, prophecy is more important than that of tongues. Why is prophecy better than tongues? Because no one understands tongues, whereas in prophecy, people are edified. And that's what he lays out here. That unless there's interpretation, no one understands. No one is edified. I remember visiting a church once. It was down in, in, in Texas, I believe. And there was a prayer time. They just had a prayer time right in the middle of service. And the people just started praying. I guess they were just used to this. They started praying and it was like, a, you know, some of those restaurants you go to. And everybody just clamoring away and we didn't know. We were just visitors. We didn't know what to do. So we just kind of prayed, you know, in our own uh, small little group. They just It was just a, a chaotic time. That's what they did. No one could understand. No one could follow. When tongues were spoken, the text says no one understands. It wasn't beneficial. And the phrase that says does not speak to men, but to God, could be translated does not speak to men, but to a God, little g. Because every instance of tongues in the Bible was a known language that someone there knew. But verse 3, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. See, when it comes to gifts, the Word of God and the dispensing of the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God, edifies and builds people up. 1 Peter 1.25 tells us, The Word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the Word which was preached to you. It is the Word of God that builds us up. Not some nice music that makes us feel good. Not some experience that builds us up. It is the Word of God. Verse 2 says that the person who speaks, speaks mysteries in his spirit. And that is a reference. I know the ESV translates it with a big S, as if some would see that as the Holy Spirit. But this, in the NIV 84, the NES, and the New King James, has a little S there. It does refer, I believe, to that of the human spirit. In his own human spirit, he speaks mysteries. Then Paul makes an interesting statement, though. Knowing in his mind's eye that some of these tongues were counterfeit. And he says, look, verse 5. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues. What's he saying there? Is he wishing truly that knowing everybody, we should all pursue tongues? Certainly not. 
a hyperbolic statement like that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, we all looked at his, the passage in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30. He says, all do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Grammatically, the implication is no. Not all speak in tongues. Not all interpret. Paul is speaking in exaggerated language. Just like in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, when he is talking about his singleness. His unmarried state. He says, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Is he advocating that everyone should be single and unmarried? No. He is using exaggerated statements in order to make a point. That prophecy is greater. That prophecy is greater. He's saying, look, I wish this thing. It's a good thing. This tongue thing. I wish that everybody would have that, that, that blessing of that gift. But even more so, I wish that prophecy would be held even greater in priority for you. So that the church might be edified and might be built up. Tongues are secondary in relationship to the proclamation of the word of God. Secondly, tongues must be interpreted. Verse 6 through 19. Tongues must be interpreted. And he breaks this down in the first six verses, 6 to 12. He tells us about the fact that unintelligible tongues, they're speaking in tongues when you cannot understand them, are useless. They're useless. <coughs> he drives home the point. And that point is, unintelligible languages are useless. And he illustrates it by using musical instruments. Musical instruments, when they give off sound and that sound is not coordinated, well, it means nothing. If something is to be considered music, it can't just be clanging or some sort of just noise. There's rhythm, or there's cadence, there's distinct notes, there's harmony, etc. And horns or trumpets were blown in those days as a warning. When the enemy was coming, they would blow the horn so that people would prepare and they would bring their things into the city or whatever it might be. They would prepare knowing that the enemy is coming. Even we have these tsunami sirens around. If they were to play, Happy Birthday to you, nobody would run to the hills. There's particular notes or sounds that sirens ought to be had. Legitimate sounds and he likens it to language. Language has legitimate meaning to it. It's not some babble that is spoken. And the fact that Paul here mentions, boy, if I speak to somebody and they don't understand, they're a barbarian to me. And I'm a barbarian to them. The fact that he mentions that or in some of your versions it says foreigner advocates the, the idea that a tongue is a known language. You're speaking to a person who would understand if they were not a barbarian. And back then, you know, a barbarian was anybody who didn't know Greek. So, you're a barbarian, I'm a barbarian. Except for the Barbalitos family. They're not barbarians. We were considered as barbarians if we didn't know Greek. So, how does this apply to us? The Bible says, what? At the very end, verse 12. So also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. It was good for the Corinthians to pursue spiritual gifts. 
They weren't ignoring them or downplaying them or despising them. Rather, they were zealous for spiritual gifts. But the Bible reminds us of the purpose. That our spiritual gifts are for what? For the edification of the church. You see, in tongues back then, they were speaking it and feeling perhaps uh, euphoria, ecstasy. That they would be drawn in spiritual communion with God. But our gifts are made and given, I should say, for the edification of the church. God has made everyone here unique. He has given you a gift, individually, gifts, by which God has designed that you bless others. And I'm not just advocating for this church or a program or something like that, but for the body of Christ, we're to use our gifts for the greater good of building up of the body. So if you have the gift of knowledge and of teaching, then use it, not just to learn for ourselves, but to teach others. If you have the gift of mercy, when you see somebody that needs help and comfort and consolation, then go and exercise that for their blessing. Don't wait for them to come and say, hey, I need your help, as if, oh, I'm the one who's always going to be asked for help. No, go and exercise that gift. If you have the gift of administration, you're great at organizing things then be involved in some way or shape that you can build up the body and help others to coordinate things in a way that will bless the greater church, the church of Jesus Christ. In our consumer-oriented society, in our self-oriented society, we are often people who say, well, I will do it if it blesses me. Or I'm here to learn and then when I learn, I am blessed and I keep these things to myself. The gifts were given for the good of the body. And it says here, seek to abound for the edification of the church. You know, in our, my first theology class, I remember the professor sharing and it was theology proper, which relates to the attributes of God. It was my favorite subject in all my seminary life, and it was just about the character and the person of God. And one time when we came, we were learning about the fact that we have such a privilege. We have such a privilege to learn and know the Word of God. And by that, we're accountable in relationship to not sinning against the Word of God. So some of the logic that uh, bounds in seminary students, well, wouldn't it be better then if we didn't learn so that we're not accountable to sin against God? We learn, you know, sort of the ignorance is bliss, bliss and lets me off the hook because I can say I didn't know. He would remember him sharing that, no, not only do we have the blessing, but we have the responsibility to learn as much as we possibly can as well. To put that into practice, and not only that, once we have learned, we have the responsibility to pass what we have learned on to others. And that applies to all of us. That applies to everyone here. That we have been blessed so much so with the Word of God. And every time I think of this whole thing so frequently in my own life, because God continually reminds me of that, that I have the privilege of learning. And so do we. Not only are we responsible to learn, but we're responsible to pass that on to others. All of us know how to read. 
All of us know how to study or look at the Word of God and understand. All of us have received not only knowledge, but spiritual gifts. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. For the Corinthians, the tongues were not interpreted and they were adding to the chaos. As I shared with you, it was very common among the cults and the pagan religions to have ecstatic speech. And people brought that idea back into the church. He says in verse 13 to 19, tongues need to be interpreted in order for them to be useful. 13, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind also. So what's the solution? When there's meaningless ecstasy, he here says, pray that he may interpret. Pray that he may interpret. That he might understand what he is saying. It's not a balloon in his head that says, I do not understand what my mind or what my mouth is saying. In other words, tongues are useless to somebody who doesn't even understand. It's useless to the speaker. It's useless to others. When we pray, we pray in our spirit as well as our mind. And some commentators who look at this particular passage as Paul is expressing some kind of sarcasm here as well because he knows that some of them have brought this kind of thing into the church. And he's saying, look, if you're going to babble, you better pray that you might understand what you're saying, knowing that they themselves likely aren't going to understand what they're saying if they brought it over. It's not true tongues of that time. The point being is, don't speak unintelligibly. Why? Verse 16. How can somebody say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you are saying? <clears throat> Ever wonder what amen means? We all say it after somebody prays. We say amen. Amen is a word of agreement. It means so be it or so let it be. It's a word of affirmation. Amen. That is why when we pray together, we say amen at the end. That is why when someone else is praying, maybe you're in a small group, maybe it's before your meal, or whatever it is, we are praying with them. We're not off daydreaming. We're not off thinking our own thing. We're not just bowing our heads just to be polite. No. We're not looking around to see if anybody else is looking at us while we are praying. No, we're to be praying with the person who is praying aloud. And in our heart, we pray as well with them. So at the end, we say, Amen. So let it be. And that is why, that is why it is polite not to shuffle around or make noise or to carry on and laugh. Why? Because we distract others as they are praying along with whoever else is praying. That they might also pray the same thing and say, Amen. So let it be as people speak with God. God's not pleased if we 
bow our heads. He's not up to the external where we just clasp our hands. No. He desires that from our heart we are also praying along in the same way in agreement. But when there are things that we don't understand, how can we say amen? I've been in a number of different places where there's been a foreign language service and the person who is praying is, is praying aloud in their, in their own heart language. And I have no clue what they're saying. And when I don't understand, I can't track, I can't follow, I can't genuinely say amen because I don't understand what they're saying. And that is Paul's point here. And one of the things for us as Christians is that often we can do the same thing. We can say things with our mouth, but it not be from our heart. We've learned how to pray and we rattle off a prayer just like that. It doesn't come from the heart. It bypasses the mind and we just say it. Or we sing and we sing a song and we know the tunes, but the words don't even register because we don't follow and our heart is disengaged. you think God is pleased with that? I don't think so. God isn't up for the external that I've done my duty by singing and saying the words or that I've said this prayer. When are we grateful for the food that we have or are we grateful for the freedoms that we have? Same thing that the Corinthians were doing. They were just caught up in the sounds of the prayers or the sounds of the tongue. Just like people can be caught up with the good music and the rhythm these days of great music that might make their heart feel emotionally moved. But they don't even know what the words are because the music is so loud. Or the music is so moving, they don't know, but they think they're communing with God. Just like tongues in those days. The Spirit is in euphoria. So when we're singing, or whether we're praying, or in biblical times when there were tongues, the point being that both the heart and the mind are to be engaged. What's wrong though, you say? What's the harm that makes people feel like they're closer to God. George Gardiner, a pastor, and he's a former Pentecostal, late George Gardiner, he writes, quote, The enemy of the soul is ever ready to take an advantage of an out-of-control situation. And thousands of Christians can testify with regret to the end results. Such experiences not only give Satan an opening he is quick to exploit. They can be psychologically damaging to the individual. Charismatic writers are constantly warning tongue speakers that they will suffer a letdown. This is ascribed to the devil, and the reader is urged to get refilled as soon as possible. So the seeker for experience goes back through the ritual again and again, but begins to discover something. Ecstatic experience, like drug addiction, requires larger and larger doses to satisfy. Sometimes the bazaar is introduced. I've seen people run around a room until they are exhausted, climb tent poles, laugh hysterically, 
go into trances for days, and do other weird things, as the high sought became more elusive. Eventually, there is a crisis and a decision is made. He will sit on the back seats and be a spectator, fake it, or go in the hope that everything will eventually be as it was. The most tragic decision is to quit, and in the quitting, abandon all spiritual as fraudulent. The spectators are frustrated, the fakers suffer guilt, the hoping are pitiable, and the quitters are a tragedy. No, such movements are not harmless. Modern day tongues are unintelligible. And the things that are spoken, the speaker does not understand themselves. And the Bible clearly points out that not only is it secondary, it is simply not edifying when we do not understand what is being said. And the point is driven home in verse 19. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Rather than 10,000 words. And he's using exaggerated language as a comparison here. That particular word is the word for 10,000. Myriad. And it's used in the book of Revelation when they say myriads upon myriads of angels. Morion ton morion. It means 10,000 upon 10,000. Meaning an innumerable amount. Rather, speak five words that people can understand. People are encouraged. People are built up. People are edified by. Rather than thousands of words in a tongue. Because people are edified when they understand the Word of God and what God says through His Word. Spiritual gifts, you see, are given for the building up of the body so that you and I can serve one another. You and I can encourage one another. You and I can bless one another. You and I can be conformed more like Jesus. The proper use of tongues and the spiritual gifts are to build up the body. So, are we seeking, as Paul says here, spiritual gifts to exercise them for others? Do we even know what our own giftedness is? And do we use it for the building up of the body of Christ? And what's our motive? What is our motive? Is it about us? Is it about me so that I can be seen and we can serve the Lord or whatever it might be? Or is it really that we desire that God be made known and that others would be edified, that I might speak five words, that others might be instructed? It's our goal to edify and build up the church. Pleasing God, pleasing God by using our gifts is what God desires. And the point here in this particular passage is that what? Spiritual gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ. And the exercise of tongues in biblical times was given that God might use them for his church. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your goodness and your kindness. And we pray, Father, that we might be discerning. Discerning, O oh God, when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. That, Father, we might be guarded. 
And that, Father, we might use the gifts which you have given to us that others, O God, might be built up. In Jesus' name, amen.